0: When the sun rises, I wake up and chase my dreams. I won't regret when the sun sets, cause I live my life like I'm a beast.
1: What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back. We are deep and heavy into our mini-series on acquisitions and finding your own lifestyle practice. Today, I'm here joined by Steve. Justin wanted to join us, but he got caught up in something. He said something about gambling and hookers or something like that. But anyway, (laughs) he couldn't be here. So, you just got the same old Derek and Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I
1: think he was helping someone that lost their job, so... He was
0: Oh, that's right. That's yeah. what he told us to say. Uh, yeah.
1: He was doing his good yeah. daily. Actually, I think he right. really
0: was. <laughs> or some other kind of charity work, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Nonetheless, <clears throat> here we are.
0: So uh Steve, some uh catching up, have you been watching any of the uh thirty for thirty episodes on uh ESPN? No. But are you talking about Lance Armstrong? Yeah. I finished the the last dance on the Chicago Bulls and MJ and I really enjoyed that. And then the next week they started on Lance Armstrong. So, yeah, there was basically the next the next two Sundays or the last two Sundays have been on Lance Armstrong.
1: Mhm. What do you think of Lance?
0: It's interesting because I had watched several documentaries on him before and it was always portrayed in a fairly negative light. And I felt like this one did focus more on his background and that he was a fierce competitor and talked about, you know, just the prevalence of, of doping in the sport. So I think it gave a little bit more of a fair insight, but still after watching, I just think, yes, this guy is an extreme competitor, but I just, I just do not like him. I mean, and I, and I can take, I can take crap, you know, MJ could give it and, you know, Kobe (laughs) and, you know, a lot of these other, you know, tiger and people can trash talk and like really do some things. But for some reason, Lance just really just rubs me the wrong way.
1: Yeah. I hear, I remember reading his book when I was, I remember reading his first book when it first came out and I did like a school report on it, how he won his first tour and he, conquered cancer and I loved him and I believed him all the way until I don't know it was like 2013 or something when he finally came out and yeah I just it was just so hard I felt betrayed almost and yeah it's just I guess I guess I'd be fine because I I think you know you, you listen to some of his teammates and doping was just what everyone did um, but it, it's, it's just, there seems to be like zero remorse even now. And it just, I think you're yeah. right. Kind of rose me the wrong way. There's like, there's just a disconnect in his mind somewhere as far as winning and treating other people versus the right thing. I mean, I'm, I'm not on moral high ground or anything, but I, I agree. He kind of rose me, rose me bad too.
0: Yeah. Well, you are on moral high ground, Steve, because <laughs> you are one of the best human <laughs> beings that I know. <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh,
1: so glad to be one of the best human beings.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. I'm going to give you a gold star. Thanks, pal. In the mail. Thanks. I love you, too. Hey, let's hit this. <laughs> I'm I'm excited. Yeah. So in the next couple of episodes, we are going to get into some of the specifics and details of looking through practices. We've kind of set the stage for it at this point. For anyone that has looked through a lot of this stuff, it can feel pretty overwhelming, but i was I was thinking about this today. We need to remember the big picture here it's It's a lot like in dental school when you're learning the whole process of of a crown for the first time. You're learning what the prep is supposed to look like, then how to get the proper impression, pouring the dye, making the crown, seating the crown. There are a lot of steps involved, but each step is important along the way to get the outcome that you want. And the same applies here. Our end goal is to get ourselves into our lifestyle practice where we're able to work less, profit more, and create a well-oiled machine that supports our lifestyle and brings us the freedom that we want. And the better that we understand that and the steps along the way, the more likely we are to reach that. Mm -hmm. So here is our first question for our discussion today. The first question is, how do I start? How do I start looking at some of these opportunities when there's so much information to wade through? And first of all, I would say to remember the big picture that... Although we want to see some specifics, it's important to remember what I just talked about. For example, we talked about insurance involvement. We talked about value add versus a high performing practice, etc. All those things are important to try and evaluate as you go through this information. Because the way that you answer those questions that we've spent the last couple episodes on will change the way that you look through these practice appraisals these appraisals are uh, reports that you will typically get from a broker and they will have a variety of things in them. Some are relatively short, five pages or less, and others can be 50 to 80 pages with tons of information and pictures. What are your thoughts on uh, on some of these things? Yeah, I am. I think
1: it's really important to study these. And I would say it's almost a little bit like like you kind of mentioned, it's practice. I mean, when, for example, when I look at real estate now, you know, I can pull up Zillow or i an MLS listing and I can get a feel pretty quickly if uh, what's going on with the house, if this is, if the numbers match up and everything. But initially, like when I first started doing that, I just had no clue. I was like, well, this house is blue, this house is green. And, but it, it comes down to practice. So I would I would really get your hands on a bunch of these prospectuses, prospectuses, prospecti. I don't know what the right word is there is, but I would get your hands on them and just read them, get familiar with them, practice kind of breaking them down. Learn to pull out the valuable information inside that packet. You know, Derek, I remember you and I in third or fourth year, we, we spent a few evenings together. We'd, we'd pull up practices up on on the tv and we would calculate epita you remember that or the doctor versus hygiene where the procedures coming from and you know we spent hundreds of nights studying you know all that stuff in dental school that you normally study but those those few evenings were like so much more valuable than any of the other test cramming sessions we ever had so I, I think it's really worth your time to get familiar with these. Um, make sure in these prospectuses, you know, some of them are thin, some of them are thick, but make sure that you're getting p and L, and this P and L it needs to be from an accountant that is doing their taxes, not like the broker's breakdown of cost percentages because those are never really accurate. You want the accountant's P and L. You need the staff information and their pay, and then you need some precise patient and insurance demographic info, you know, the days worked, and then a production by procedure report. And if you can get those few things together, you can really get a pretty good handle of a practice by linking the right information between those reports.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good list. And we'll kind of go through some of those and talk about how to gleam ideas and principles from that information. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Some of those nights in Omaha were a ton of fun. I mean, it was, I mean, you and I both looking at practices, plugging in the numbers, putting it on the big screen, looking at it and, you know, kind of thinking through these different scenarios was uh, really a, a pretty fun experience. And it's even more fun now almost to kind of look back and yeah, think, you know, here's where we are <laughs> now. And this is where it kind of started in the beginning. So it's pretty yeah. cool.
1: It is fun. That is fun.
0: So one thing that I would recommend is that you are going to see so many different opportunities and likely so many practices out there that I think it's important for you to create your own criteria for some of your minimums, kind of like you're creating this this floor. It's like we're, we're looking uh, at getting a, a fifth wheel trailer and I need a new truck to be able to pull it. And there are some things that I need or that I really want in that truck. And so I want it to have four-wheel drive and I need it to be a dually. So it doesn't make sense for me to look at a bunch of trucks that don't fit my kind of my minimum criteria. So I think I would recommend doing the same thing as you're looking at practices. So we're going to go through a, a few different things here that would be good for you to think about and to think what your minimums are gonna be so that you can kind of go through quickly, throw out the ones that don't match up, so that you don't waste your time spending really looking heavily into a practice to then find out that doesn't have something that you feel is key. Yeah. Right. First criteria I would say is not necessarily that I'm ranking these in a particular order, but first one that I would bring up is is number of operatories. It's a good one to consider. I think the least that I would consider would be 3 more possibly 4. If if the practice has one hygienist and you have three operatories, that would allow you to work out of out of two operatories. But if you want to go to two hygienists, two full-time hygienists, then that's that's going to be tough to make that happen. Many times offices will have maybe an opportunity to expand or have another operatory. But uh in my situation, my really when I was looking, I what I was comfortable with, my my minimum really was four. I was more hoping for five. But anyway, so my practice has four operatories. There was one hygienist when I purchased it, and after a few months, I brought on a, a part-time hygienist, and then after a year brought her on full-time. If I would have only had three ops, this would have limited my growth, I believe. There are times now that I think it would be really nice to have a fifth operatory. And it's possible that it that may be a limiting factor for me a bit. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. But it also hasn't been super noticeable for me. But again, that kind of depends on what your plans are. Do you, do you hope to expand, bring on an associate or partner in the future, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think for most cases for a solo doc, that's not, you know, that... Is kind of a go getter and wants to see patients and get a lot done. I would, I would do a minimum of four. I mean, I, I know Justin. I think he, he crushed his first year, few years with three. So I mean, it can happen. But I mean, as long as you're, as long as you're casting your net out there, I'd, I'd look for at least four. My personally, I added a fifth op in my office about six months in, and it was, it was just like a, a release valve that just let us do a lot more. To be honest, I wish I could even have another six. I think it would help me a lot. Uh, but bigger than that, like seven chairs or more, you're probably looking at, you'd only do that if you had an associate or if you had like an extra chair for like ortho or just kids cleanings or something like that. But this is a really good way to trim down your, your searching pool, toss out anything. I, I would say I would just do four or above or if it has three, you're able to expand easily.
0: Yeah, good thoughts. Okay. The, the next criteria that I would propose that you think through is is profit. In a sense, what we're talking about here is is income. The way that I look at it, and this is from a value add perspective, but it works if you're purchasing a higher performing practice as well. When I'm looking at practices, I want to purchase a practice that already has the amount of profit or income that I would be happy to have in the first year. And this is in in a sense, this is my worst-case scenario when I'm looking at a value-add practice. I'm looking to grow the practice, but I want to have a floor knowing that if worse comes to worse and I don't grow at all, I'll still be able to pay the bills and cover my lifestyle expenses. Then any growth on top of that will be icing on the cake. So if you're purchasing a higher-performing practice and you're not looking at growing as aggressively... Again, you're going to basically pick the income that you'd like to have. So for me, in my situation, I decided that $200,000 was the absolute minimum that I needed to have in order to feel good about owning a practice. This meant that if I purchased a practice on the lower end of overhead, around 50%, my minimum amount of production would be $400,000. You don't have to go about it this way, but I do feel like this is a good middle of the road balance. What are your thoughts here, Steve?
1: Yeah, I'd agree. I think it's really easy again that'll just kind of eliminate a lot of practices that you don't even need to research heavily. I think it's good to have a minimum and then maybe even a maximum too because like some huge practices uh if you're not up for taking those on, I think that could also be something that you don't really need to look into if you don't want this huge practice with an army of employees and staff. But yeah, I think a bare minimum, really, if you're going to buy a practice, it should be probably, like you said, two or 300K because otherwise a great associateship could could get close to that anyway. So, I think that's <clears throat> those are kind of good parameters to have.
0: When you were looking at practices, did you have a specific range
1: well, it's different now, of course, but in my mind, as brand new, I thought I can pro I can probably do a million. So I'm going to look for a practice that is doing that much dentistry with a profit of about 400k, three to 400k, and my practice it was doing just under 300 in profit. So that was kind of my roughly the same, roughly the same as yours. And I think those are good numbers to go by. It's just safe. We talk about value add, but I mean you don't want to you don't want to pick up a a really problematic practice with no profit or no significant flow and say I'm going to value add this cuz then you're getting risky and it's not worth your time even if you could do it and unfortunately I think a lot of dentists that when they're motivated by not paying a lot for practice lower their debt, you know, their debt headache so they kind of look at these really low end struggling practice, but there there's a reason you know dentists are selling those and trying to get out of them is because of they're underperforming. So I think a good minimum is probably a good safeguard for you. You know, and when you look at a prospectus or even just like listings on a website, you can tell really quick how many ops they have and how much profit they have. So those are two really quick things to rule out and kind of narrow down your search. Once you Get a, a good pile to look from. The next thing I would look at is go ahead and pull up their addresses of those practices that meet your ops and your location parameters, and then just delve into the location. Because, and we're going to talk about this more in the episode. But location is it's prime, it's it's king, and it really should be right at the top of the priority. It's my number one when evaluating a practice. So. Location, I think, can be split down further into uh, location by visibility and location as in demographics. Um, When I talk with docs on practice opportunities, or if I ever buy another one or do a startup, it's going to be a necessity that the practice has a visible location on a busy road with signage availability. Almost an absolute necessity. I mean, I guess if if there's a practice that's crushing it without that, that's good. But otherwise... That's just king for me. And you know, you you get anything else, you're going to be trying to make up for it for the lack of visibility for however many years you own that practice. As far as demographics, I would definitely find an unsaturated spot with a decent average income of the people living in that area. I would really eliminate options that don't fit into this criteria. So, you know, is the practice hidden in a medical plaza and it's hard to find with your Google Maps, much less even see it? it, That's going to be a hard no. You can just pass on it. You don't even need to stress over that or look more into it. You know, and the reason location is so important is other than the fact, of course, that it's going to get you more new patients is that location is unchangeable. You can change the other things about a practice. You can change the office systems, the scheduling systems. You can change your insurance setup or your participation. You know, you can even update your office with new equipment. If you have old stuff, you can even get rid of staff and get new staff, but you can't change location. So I would put that towards the top of the list as well. Just making sure that's a priority. Because again, you can't change it. You can change other things. Like I mentioned, you can change equipment. You know, if you're you're okay with older equipment, I know you and I just... Uh, you and I, Derek, both got. Did old. you
0: just call me Justin?
1: I sorry, you guys are just like you look so similar.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: Uh, but I was saying, you and I, we both bought old offices with old equipment, but we went into it knowing that we could update it, and it wasn't going to be a huge deal because, I mean, there is a cost tag, but as long as you plan that in your buy, that then it's not too hard to change, and you can get the other, you know, benefits that are not easy to change.
0: Yeah, I think that those were good points. I think let's let's go ahead and just talk about that a little bit as far as the the idea of how updated a practice is when it comes to equipment and just overall kind of look and feel of the practice inside. You'll see a few different things and and one of the things is that sometimes buyers won't factor in costs that they need to that they may need to end up spending on updating equipment and the practice. And then they, uh, they end up having to spend that and end up in a lower cash flow situation because of the extra cost. I've also seen the opposite side of this, where many buyers are so turned off by an outdated practice that they don't even consider it. And this means that you may have more leverage in the negotiation process if there's less demand for the practice. In my offer on my practice that I purchased, I lowered the asking price by the cost of estimated updates to the practice. And I ended up getting it at a, at a, at a price that I was really happy about. And in the first two years, I spent less than what I estimated in my initial proposal.
1: Such a great negotiator.
0: <laughs> so yes, it's important to factor that in, but don't let it scare you away from a practice. You have to remember that the practice is already running and functioning with everything that they already have in place. So theoretically, you should be able to go into the practice and keep the same numbers without having to spend a ton. It may have an effect on the marketability of the practice as far as increasing numbers of new patients. And that's important to consider. But at the same time, we increased our new patient numbers long before Really spending much to update the practice. But uh, for some buyers, you may not want to deal with that hassle. And there's no, nothing wrong with that either. But the point of this one is just to decide if you're willing to purchase a practice that is updated or not.
1: Yeah. And I would say updated. Uh, I would just look at the overall facility. You know, obviously the building, the floor, the walls, what, like it's all good. If it's just the equipment, it's easy to get a new chair and a new x-ray head and, and throw in some computers. So I wouldn't be too afraid of it either. As long as, as long as you know what you're getting into. Yeah. If the, if the problems are any deeper than that though, like really old facility, really old building, I would, uh, I'd move on. So,
0: yeah. Okay. Next criteria. And this goes along a, a little bit with, uh, what we talked about as far as income, this is overhead. When you're looking at practices, you will see a lot of practices in the 60 to 70 percentage overhead range, less in the 50s and 80s, and then even less in the 40s and 90s. It's, it's kind of a simple bell curve with the height of the bell curve right around 65 or so. Would you agree with that, Steve? Yeah, I, that's a good image. I like that. Cool. Yeah. This, this part of the equation goes right along with the, the previous part figuring out your the minimum amount of income you'd like to see. The overhead is a critical part to that equation, but there's more to it as well. It just means that the higher the overhead, the more dentistry you will have to do to reach the same amount of profit. This is probably obvious, but I think it's just worth discussing really quickly. If you look at two different practices, practice A collects a million per year at 70% overhead, Practice B collects $600,000 per year at 50% overhead. Which of these two practices would you rather purchase? Both of them, you're going to cash flow the the same amount, but in one, you're going to have to do about a third, a little bit more than a third more dentistry in order to reach that same amount of profit. Yeah, yeah. And imagine how much
1: $400,000 of dentistry is and that's how much more work you need to do to get to to take the exact same home so um, definitely no-brainer but people kind of overlook that because they're like oh a million production that's great lots of people they'll throw up big numbers like oh this practice does a million or two million but you have to put that as you have to kind of put that all aside and and the ego that goes with it it doesn't matter what the production is it's matter it matters what you keep you know with overhead really of course the lower the better and that's why it's important to be able to look at a P&L and understand what's making up that overhead. Are they overpaying staff? Is it a huge lease? Because those things are difficult for you to go in and change. If some of the expenditures are on other things, you may be able to go in and correct that overhead a little bit better.
0: Right. So, again, the point here is to develop a floor for your different criteria. And the big picture here is that the lower the overhead is, the less you have to work to reach your income. So for me in general, the max overhead that I wanted to see in a practice, it was probably 60 to 65%. Anything higher than that, I just didn't want to get into. I wanted to be able to get the practice close to 50% within my first year. So something that seemed like it would be out of reach to get to that point within a year, I was willing to just pass on. Yeah. Next part, which is part of the overhead, which is staff overhead. And this is an area that I think is relatively important when looking at a potential practice purchase. In my opinion, this is the most important number when looking at the breakdown of overhead. I have found that when looking at a traditional office as far as overhead, you can probably take the total overhead minus 30%, and that's probably going to give you approximately what staff overhead is going to be at. So, for example, a 60% overhead office will probably have staff overhead around 30%. 70% overhead office will have staff around 40%. It's not always the case, but it is the most variable expense when looking at offices so when you are evaluating an office and looking at cash flow this is an important item to look at because if you want to increase cash flow and staff overhead is high you are going to have two options to get there the first is to increase production collections the other is going to be to decrease salaries or to let staff go In general, I would say it's usually easier to increase production and collections than it is to decrease staff costs. Lowering salaries is basically impossible to do without really putting a damper on things and letting staff go can have similar ramifications. This is why I think this is relatively important. It's not that you can't fix it, but when you're comparing a list of things that you could go in and change and improve in a practice, this is definitely on the more difficult end of things. For our clients and our practices at the lifestyle practice, we are generally shooting for 20% as far as all the costs that are associated with staff. If you're new to this idea, go back and listen to the episode that Justin and I did on bonus systems. But as far as developing a floor, I saw this similar to overhead. I wanted to be able to get it close to 20% in the first year or two. So the maximum that I was willing to consider in, in a practice purchase was, was 30%. Anything above that, I just threw it to the side. Any thoughts here, Steve, or are there any other, any other metrics or areas where you would set a minimum?
1: Oh, I agree. I think staff, that's a really quick one to look at. And You'll find, especially with older practices, really tenured staff, unfortunately that wage creep has kind of caught up to that dentist, and they usually can have a pretty bloated payroll. So I think you summed it up well how to bring that down, increase production. But if it's so if it's big enough that it would be really hard to, to bring down I'd probably find easier easier opportunities. As far as other kind of uh, numbers or metrics that could be a parameter, it's hard to give an absolute minimum. But I would say, you know, when I l- look at a practice prospectus, I want to see a strong number of new patients. So, you know, new patients, uh, a practice with, say, under 15 or maybe 10 a month, that's a red flag in my opinion. Because, you know, a practice under... 20 new patients a month likely means the practice is in decline just from patients leaving. So, if you have a really low new patient number, you need to figure out why. In my opinion, new patients, they're earned by either A, the doctor's drive and motivation, as in this is a motivated doc, he's pushing the practice, he's getting people in, he's asking for referrals or reviews, or B, the location. And if the cause of low new patients is because of a slow selling doctor, you can come in and replace him or her and do, do that with no problem. If the cause of no new patients is because of a terrible location with low visibility, then that's, uh, that's an easy no for me,
0: if that makes sense. So, then tell me your thoughts on my practice, Steve, because when I bought it, I think he was averaging like six to 10 new patients per month how would you use that as an example to decide whether or not that was a concern that you're willing to pass on the practice? Uh, I
1: think you made a big mistake, Derek, because probably what you did. No. Um, (laughs) Well, you're right. uh, To your point.
0: No turning back now. It's too late. (laughs) I mean, it's it's still,
1: it would definitely give me pause, but it would just require us to answer why. So using yours, we'd look it up and be like, Oh, this is very high fee for service practice. So obviously we can adjust the standards down for that. There's going to be or the new patient numbers standards down for that. Then I'd start with location and demographic research and see that, wow, your practice is on the busiest street in the area. The doctor's really old. He takes off at lunch or he takes off and goes home at lunch. So that uh, basically the more you dig into it, that initial fl- red flag turns into, man, this is like a killer opportunity, which to your credit, Derek, you definitely jumped on. But that being said, other dentists have shared opportunities with me that, you know, they have five to 10 new patients a month. And on most of these though, there are problems in those practices that I would not want to take out a big loan to try to fix. Another number that I like to look at is uh, the the dentist to population ratio in the demographics. So, you know, one dentist to 4,000 people or more, it kind of sets you up for a home run one dentist to 3000 is is good. You know, once you get to 1 to 2000 it's doable but harder and and anything less than that you just need to realize you're going into a really competitive area. So it's going to it's going to be harder and take a lot more work.
0: Steve, do you remember when you were looking at your practice, do you remember what the dentist to population ratio was?
1: Um yeah, mine was about 3000, but there was a little there were a couple of rural counties south of us that had no dentists. So I I just kind of up up that number in my book. Yours was similar, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, if you looked just kind of in the in the city area of Lufkin, it was relatively poor, but when you took the whole county as far as how many dentists and and the population it was it was close to about 4,000 to 1.
1: Yeah, nice. We look big picture there. Another number you can look at is active patients. So this is something that um, brokers will give you. (laughs) I'm speaking negatively of brokers, but sometimes in a prospectus, you'll get like a really some high pie in the sky number of active patients. You know, this practice has 4,000 active patients, but really um, that number usually doesn't mean anything. I wouldn't trust that. Instead, I think a good way to go is to get a feel for active patients is pull from the production by procedure report and then add all of the recall exams divided by two because there's recall exams every six months and then add to that comprehensive exams and that will give you a feel for how many patients regularly call your practice home for them. Anything smaller than a thousand or eight hundred I think is a smaller practice. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go for it but that'll kind of give you an idea of the size or the number of patients that frequent your office.
0: Yeah, I I really don't like this number in reports, and I don't feel like it's all that important. the The problem is that there's no hard definition of what this number actually represents. So, I would rather do, as you shared, and get the recall exams number to look at things. But even then, the production numbers will speak for themselves and be more important than the actual number of of patients.
1: Yeah. I think probably the biggest thing is they'll just let you know how many recall, profi, like hygiene, things you can reliably count on. But, you know, so those are some, I guess, some things to look at. It's hard to give an exact minimum. Because things are going to vary depending on what type of practice it is, where you're at. But, you know, it'll kind of give you a feel for what you're getting into.
0: Yeah. So, again, your floors are also going to be significantly influenced by the area that you're looking and the radius that you're looking as well. If you're searching a much more broad area, you're going to be able to be a little bit more picky. The same when I talked about looking for a new truck, if I'm willing to drive 500 miles to go get a truck, I'm going to have a lot more options than if I'm just wanting to look for something that's within 50 miles of me. So, you know, that's a simple simplified example, but the principles are the same. If I'm willing to move or be in different areas, I might be able to choose among a hundred practices versus if I have one town or or city that I'm looking at, I might only have five or maybe even only one. But uh, that's why we discussed location before all of this, because it's such an important one to nail down. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for listening, guys. Hope that this is helping. One last thing that we want to share is that we are extremely excited for the launch of the Lifestyle Practice Academy 2.0. 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Justin and Steve and I have been going through the entire course and we have revamped it. There are now 71 small sections that are broken up. There are 14 bonuses to make your practice life easier. We have really gone all out to make this what we believe is the best course out there on practice management and ultimately what will get you to the point of increasing your income on fewer working days. So stay tuned for more information. We normally have Three launch weeks each year, but this year we have limited it to two and it will be coming up pretty soon. You guys will not want to miss out. If you want to receive email updates, make sure that you're on our email list. And the easiest way to do that is to go to thelifestylepractice.com, click on learn more and enter your email address. It's easy. As always, feel free to reach out to any of us as well or post on our Facebook page. Take care everybody, we will talk to you next week. Later. sweat. my life like it's all